Today, uh, we talk about love. Your love is an expression of what you value, what you treasure, and what you regard as worthy or meaningful. And this is true for essentially every kind and every expression of love. It is a reflection in some way of, uh, of things that you value, sometimes things that you value more than other things. This morning, we look to Psalm 119, 97 through 104. And this is uh, another stanza of Psalm 119. We have, uh, we have continued to look through stanza by stanza this, uh, this wonderful psalm, which is a psalm uh, about God's word and all that God's word means to us, all that it accomplishes. And every stanza looks at a, a, different, um, a different part of God's word. Uh, it comes at it from a different angle. It examines God's word in, in a different aspect of what it means uh, for God's people, in a different aspect of, of what it accomplishes and what it does this entire stanza in verse 97 through 104 speaks to an, an expression of the psalmist's love for the law of God, for his word. And so we talk today about love, but most importantly, we talk about how the love of the psalmist for God's word uh, transforms him and how the word itself transforms us. Let's look to verse 97. Brother Allen read this passage earlier. Let's look at verse 97, which reads, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The expression of love in verse 97, it is an exclamation. And in your Bible, in all likelihood, it ends in an exclamation point. Uh, to make that very clear, this is an exclamation. It's, uh, it's not simply a, uh, a, an abstract statement of fact. It is stated with feeling, with passion, emotion, and with power. It's not only intellectual, but it is passionate. And the psalmist's love of the law is not just the product, then, of a reasoned analysis that has led him to some sort of a sterile conclusion that the law is, on balance, more beneficial than not. It's, this is not simply the product of, of the psalmist looking at, uh, at, at different ways of living and he's decided, well, this seems to be the best one. This is an expression of, of love. Uh, and there's a depth to that love. It is, in fact, in, emotional. But it's not just a feeling for its own sake. It is not, first, a feeling. Uh, love is, in fact, um, uh, emotional, uh, but it's deeper than emotions. Uh, love is emotional, but love is not itself an, an emotion. Love involves conviction, a depth of conviction. And you can only love what you know. Love regards its object. If you love something, you regard it and you treasure it. You see it for what it is 
and you value it, and it becomes your treasure. And the more you know the object of your love, the more completely you can love it. The more you know the object of your love, the more you can apprehend its worthiness, the more deeply and more completely you are able uh, to love it and treasure it. So the object of the psalmist's love in this stanza is the law of God. And his passion, his passionate response to God's word, it speaks to the depth of his conviction. It speaks to how deeply he values and treasures uh, the word. It's the kind of exclamation that only comes from deep conviction. How the psalmist's love for the law shapes his mind and his life is the subject of the rest of this stanza in Psalm 119. Now that's the first half of verse 97, this exclamation, oh, how I love your law. Then the psalmist says, it is my meditation all the day. If the psalmist's exclamation His love for the law shows us the depth and the completeness of his love. Then these next words show us the constancy of his love and the central place that it holds in his mind. So his love for the law is not only complete, coming from his inner being, it is also constant and consistent. So his love of the law is his exclamation, and then his constant meditation upon the law is the application of that exclamation. Because he loves the law, therefore he meditates it on the, uh, all the day. This requires a dedication to the law that works from the inside out. To love the law and meditate, it on, and meditate on the law all day long, it requires, again, that deep conviction that comes from the inside out. It's not external only. And it cannot be just a work of the will. I'm going to try to do this, even though I don't really believe in it or value it. I'm just going I'm, I'm to try to think about it a lot. It has to come from the inside out. Think about any chore that you do, any errand, any task that you have in front of you. Is there anybody who enjoys pulling weeds? Does anyone enjoy pulling weeds? Actually, there probably are some of you who might enjoy uh, um, um, pulling weeds, I I suppose. Um, But probably not for its own sake, right? You don't just go pull weeds just because you like to do it. As a matter of fact, if, if you look out the window, there's a whole desert of, of weeds. So if any of you really just likes pulling weeds for its own sake, you, you, you can keep yourself busy all day, every day. But not one of you, I think, is, uh, is likely to go outside and start uh, clearing the entire Arizona desert of weeds for fun. If you do enjoy that type of yard work, and praise God for people who, uh, who do, then it's not for its own sake, is it? It's, it's because of what it means. It's because of there's something that you value about it. 
You value presenting your house uh, in an orderly way. You value hospitality and having a welcoming front yard for people, something of that nature. It's because you believe that it's good. It's because of some conviction in you that this is good that causes you uh, to desire it and, uh, and to appreciate it. Otherwise, you might be convinced to get your daily chores done because they're necessary, uh, but you're not crying out, oh, how I love washing the dishes. And you're certainly not thinking fondly about washing dishes all day long. Sometimes effort can get you to do the job in a temporary fashion, but effort won't make anything the constant center of your thoughts. Only love does that, and only a love that is grounded in deep and true conviction. Love and meditation then go hand in hand. Love that's rooted in deep conviction leads to constant meditation. And if you've, I know a lot of you here are are married, and I I think uh, when you began your courtship, you wanted to be around that person you loved all the time. And when you weren't with that person, you were thinking about being with that person. You wanted to be with that person, right? Love and meditation go hand in hand. Uh, And a love that's rooted in a deep and abiding conviction It leads to constant meditation. And then that meditation uh, produces fruit that shapes how you live. And if I really love uh, my spouse, and I love my wife, I'm shaping my life in such a way that is going to serve her and is, is built around spending time with her and investing in her and she with me. That's what love does. That constant meditation, you're not just thinking thoughts because you've got to think something. You're you're thinking about the object of your love, and it's leading you to live your life in a certain way. It's shaping how you live, and it's shaping what you do. When your meditation rooted in love is upon the law of God, the fruit that it produces is wisdom. And instead of following your own wisdom, you follow the wisdom of God. That's the fruit that is produced by a love of God's word. It means that it is God's word, his wisdom, his righteousness that guides your steps instead of your own. So verse 98 then says, in verses 98 through 100, the next few verses, we're going to look at how this produces a wisdom that is beyond any kind of human wisdom. Verse 98 says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. The Psalms, and especially Psalm 119, use a lot of different words to uh, refer to scripture. They're all referring to scripture, but a lot of these words that are used Um, uh, to reference scripture, they have a different sense to them. So we say the law of God, and and sometimes what that means is scripture, all of scripture. You can call all of scripture God's law in in a certain sense, but it's emphasizing a certain part of of what God's 
um, word means. You can refer to the testimonies of God. Um, there are different words. You can refer to his counsel. Here, in verse 98, the word that the psalmist chooses is commandment. So it's emphasizing a certain part of, uh, of God's word, the commandments. And it says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. So the psalmist's love for the law of God, it's a love that is um, uh, for all of the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God that's revealed in his, um, in his word. But here, the psalmist is drawing our attention specifically to that aspect of his word that gives us instruction. It gives us a, a guidance and a rule for life. The psalmist turns to the commandments of, a, uh, of God in a time and in a context of conflict. He chooses to reference and draw our attention to a comparison to his enemies. The fact that he's referring to his enemies means he, he's talking about not just any time, but times when there is real conflict in his life. He says that your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. To the world, it is times of conflict when the temptation to cut corners is the greatest. It is easy to be obedient when everything is good. And the psalmist is saying, when things are bad, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For the world, it's in those times of conflict when there's a strong temptation to break the rules or bend the rules or make exceptions for the greater good. Isn't a time of war or emergency? Actually, we see this in, in government, don't we? Uh, we have declarations of emergency as times when the normal rules don't apply and we can have the freedom to make it up as we go along, right? That is the, the way that, uh, that the world uh, thinks. You do whatever is necessary in that time of emergency or conflict. But the psalmist says, no, the opposite. The opposite is true. God's commandments are always with him, and that includes the time of emergency, the time of conflict, the time of true, desperate urgency. And in fact, because the psalmist has the word of God with him, even in those times, that becomes the reason why he has a wisdom that is greater than the wisdom of his enemies. Why? Because the wisdom that he has then is not his, but God's. And God's instruction in that time of urgency is our shield and our protection. And we trust that God has given us his commandments precisely for such a time as this. I don't know what that means for you, what time this is for you. But you know what? God did, and he knew it before he laid the foundations of the world. He knew it when he laid down his law. He knew it when he gave you his word. He knew exactly the situation that you would be in 
today and now, right now, and he gave you his word for this time. And that means you can rely on his word completely. He meant it for you, and he meant it for now. And if that's his wisdom, if his word represents his wisdom, then it is greater than any wisdom that you could come up with. So there is no better source of practical wisdom in any time or circumstance than God's instructions. And times of urgency, in fact, are when we need God's wisdom the most and when it is most beneficial to us. So very opposite of the world. It's times of urgency when we can most rest on and rely on the fact that God has given us his word to guide our steps. Now that means that you do need to know God's word. Because the only way that you can say with the psalmist that his commandments are always with you is if you know those commandments. If you know them, when we know God's word and we trust it, then his instruction becomes our foundation even in the most desperate times. And we have a solid rock to rest upon. And we're not flailing to find solutions for ourselves. We're not in that situation that the world is in. Well, those rules worked for us when times were okay, in times of peace, but now we've got an emergency. Now we've got to make it all up from, from scratch. No, you have God's word. And it's a solid rock that is useful and beneficial and perfect for every situation. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of men. While the world flails in desperation, we stand on the solid rock of God's word. And so in that time of conflict, the psalmist can say, my my enemies, they have nothing to rest upon. But I have the wisdom of God. And it makes me wiser than my enemies. In the same way, verse 99 then shows us that the word of God is the highest source of knowledge and understanding. It says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Now, it is wonderful to have a good teacher. I know we have good teachers in this uh, sanctuary. So it's great to have a good teacher. You know what's even better? Having a good teacher who teaches things that are true. (laughs) As someone said, it ain't so much man's ignorance that does the harm as his knowing so many things that ain't so. There certainly are people whom God has gifted with an ability to teach, and that is a tremendous blessing, isn't it? Uh, But your knowledge can only be as good as the source of your knowledge. It can only be, your your lesson can really only be as, uh, as good as the content of the curriculum. You can teach that curriculum very effectively, but if it ain't true, then what is taught? So, When the psalmist says that he has more understanding than all his teachers, what he's doing there is he is paying honor to the highest source of knowledge. 
There's no higher source of knowledge than the word of God. The Bible alone is the perfect, inerrant word of God. It is a higher authority than any scholar, any teacher, or anything in creation. The psalmist says that he understands more than his teachers, and he tells you why. He says it is because his meditation is on the testimonies of God. And his wisdom is greater than his teachers exactly to that extent. As soon as his meditation is no longer on the testimonies of God, he is no longer wiser than his teachers. But insofar as his meditation is upon God's wisdom and he is living within that wisdom instead of his own, then by definition, his understanding is higher, not only than his teachers, but than any human understanding. So long as your understanding is governed by God's written word, then you have an understanding that surpasses any and all human understanding that is possible or even conceivable. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The psalmist could also say, I have an understanding that is more perfect than my own understanding. So long as he rests in the testimonies of God, he rests in an understanding that surpasses the greatest human teachers. The point here is that the psalmist is wise to the extent that he outsources his wisdom to God's word. His his wisdom is not something, and his understanding is not something that he has produced or conjured himself. It is something that he has received from God as revealed in his word. And that kind of wisdom, the wisdom of God, it is readily available to you and to anyone who will simply trust and follow his word. Verse 100 makes one more comparison for us. The psalmist says he, he has... He, Understands more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, there is a lot that, uh, uh, that we can learn from one another. And like iron, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's a lot for us to learn from each other. God gave us churches for a reason. We gather and we are instructed and commanded not to forsake the gathering of the saints. We're commanded to gather on the Lord's day. And to worship him. And uh, where church specifically refers to gathering. You cannot have church alone. And God designed church that way for a reason. Because he uses our brothers and sisters in Christ as as instruments to uh, work to our sanctification. So there's a lot for us to learn from each other. And age and experience do bring real wisdom for God's people. That's why younger believers are supposed to learn from older men and women in the church, as taught in Titus 2. I recognize that a lot of churches like to split people up. And if you are younger, you stay with younger people. 
And if you're 12 and 13 years old, you stay with other people who are 12 and 13 years old until you turn 14, and then you're with the same people. You're only ever with people who are exactly your age. And uh, if, if, you, um, if your Sunday school teacher is uh, Alan and you, you, uh, you're in that class, you age out of his class, you're going to go to somebody else's class with people your own age. I realize there are a lot of, there, there's a lot of life that's divided that way. Our school systems are divided that way. And a lot of our churches are divided that way. We don't divide that way. Why do we not divide that way? Because we actually think that we are supposed to gather with all of the people in the church, that we need each other. And uh, that includes younger people learning from older people. It does. And if... Um, if you've got a few more years than I do, then I've got a few um, years' worth of things that I can learn from your uh, experience. It doesn't preclude older people learning from younger people, but it certainly speaks to uh, a wisdom that comes with experience, especially from seasoned uh, believers who have walked with the Lord for, for a long time. But hear this, hear this. If any of us has wisdom, young or old. It is only wisdom. It only counts as wisdom if it is wisdom according to the word of God. That's the only wisdom that matters. It's the only wisdom that counts. And if it's not wisdom according to God's word, then it's not wisdom. If you want wisdom, it's not a skill that you build. You seek it in the word. You don't find it in yourself. You rely totally on the wisdom of God as he has taught that wisdom to us in his holy word. Now, sometimes that means that you do not understand. And yet you trust in God and obey him anyway. Sometimes that is what wisdom actually means. It means saying, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but I do understand what you have taught to me in your scriptures. I do understand what you have instructed me to do, and I will do it. And that's wisdom. Sometimes the answer to why God has ordained what he has ordained and why he has commanded what he has commanded is simply the answer that God gave to Job when he appeared out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God gave Job an answer. In that situation, it was a pretty incredible answer. But part of the answer was that he doesn't owe Job an answer. <laughs> when the psalmist says he understands more than the aged, age is not the point. Obedience is. Because he says the reason he understands more than the aged is because he keeps God's precepts. Your wisdom, above all, is in hearing and following God's revealed will in his scriptures. So what the psalmist is telling us here is simply this. There is greater wisdom simply in obeying God than any age, experience, teaching, or natural ability can ever bring. Now we look to verses uh, 101 and 102, all of this shows us how the psalmist's love for the word shapes his life, shapes his mind. 
because he trusts not in his own wisdom, but in the word of God. Verse 101 says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Do you want a way to keep yourself from evil? Seek God. Seek the kingdom. We saw in the beginning of the stanza that the psalmist's love is for the word. He loves the word because he loves God, because he loves his Savior. If the passion of your life that flows from the deepest conviction of your mind is to pursue God, then you will cast aside every sin and everything of the world for the sake of seeking him. That's what verse 101 expresses for the psalmist, that the purpose for his keeping and the function of his keeping his feet from evil, every evil way, is because he is pursuing fervently God's word. The motivation to turn from evil here is to pursue God. The things of this world, if you are desiring to pursue God, if you are desiring his kingdom, if you are setting your mind on eternity, then the things of this world are a distraction. And sin is an obstacle to your knowing God more. Turning your feet from evil is simply part and parcel of turning your feet towards God and running to him. And this reveals what it really takes to follow God, to love the word, to make all of this real as it is real for the psalmist. It happens when you love him. It happens when you love the word. And you love the word because you love God. It means your heart has to be transformed. It has to be transformed. His word must transform you. Only God can do that. Only God can take the heart of a sinner and transform it so that instead of loving the things of this world, you love God. You love his word and you chase after with all of your might. You chase after and you pursue him. You seek him. Then and only then do you turn your feet away from every evil thing because every ounce of your strength is devoted to running, sprinting, stumbling, rolling, everything you can do to seek after God. Only God can do it. Verse 102 says, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Now, the inverse of this statement is equally true. If you had not taught me, I would turn aside from your rules. It is because God has taught me that I do not turn aside from your rules. It is because God has taught me that I pursue him. If he had not taught his word to my heart, then I would turn aside. But because God has taught me, I do not turn aside from your rules. Instead, I follow you. I follow you. 
to love God truly. Not just to attend church and check the boxes that have to be checked to look like a good, upstanding, church-going person. But to love God truly means apprehending God for who he truly is as he is revealed in his word and holding fast to the deep conviction that he is good and that he is true and his word is good and true for you. It's a conviction that goes from the inside out. You have to be transformed. But there is a glorious truth here. The psalmist says, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. What God has imparted... And what he has written on your heart, nobody can erase. If you are taught by God, then his word will do its work. It will not come back void. If God writes it on your heart, it is there to stay. And if God transforms you, then nobody's changing you back. He will transform your life from the inside out. It's a work of God. When God saves sinners... He doesn't only change their outside behavior. When the Holy Spirit changes hearts, it's not by some kind of external influence or force or coercion. He changes people from the inside out in a way that goes to their very desires and their nature. You are reborn and made new to a new creature. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. The Apostle Paul speaks of this work of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3 when he speaks of how the Father grants the saints to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If Christ has taken up residence in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is no one who has standing to bring an eviction proceeding. It's a work that God God does from the inside out, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will transform you. This is entirely a work of God. By that work, he grants you a knowledge of himself that is grounded in deep conviction so that you not only hear the words with your ears, but you comprehend. It takes root. And you receive it. And you comprehend the breadth, the length, the height and the depth, and you know the love of Christ. If he has taught this to you, then that knowledge rooted in love, it will not depart from you. You are transformed. And the more you turn to that love, the more you turn to the work of Christ, the more you turn to his word and rest in it and feed upon it, the more it does its transforming work. It's supernatural. It is transforming. Verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Only the transformed mind sees the word of God in this way. And it has two effects, two sides of the same coin. 
and this is the first, that the word of God becomes sweeter than honey to your taste. That's what the word of God does. It's by the word of God. It's by his gospel, by seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ that is revealed in his word, that you are transformed. And then by that transforming work, you see the beauty of his word, and it is sweet to your taste. That's the first side of the coin. And the second is found in verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The word is hate. Is it right for a Christian to hate? It is right for a Christian to hate sin. It is right for a Christian to hate every false way. You not only love And these are the two sides of the same coin. And they're the two sides of God's holiness, that he loves what is righteous and that he hates what is evil. And so the transformed mind that's been transformed by the word of God not only loves the ways of God, but you hate the sin that pulls you away from God and his ways. The apostle Peter speaks of this changed and transformed mindset in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul, the apostle, speaks of the same transformation in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the question for us then is where do you go to obtain this kind of love for the word? Where do you go? You go to the word itself. You see, this starts with the word and it ends with the word because it starts with God. And it ends with God. It is by the word you come to know God. And by the word he transforms you. And now transformed, you have a new love for the word of God. Verse 104 says, it is through your precepts that I get understanding. Sanctification begins and ends with the word. In the word you see the gospel of Jesus Christ unfold, and through the word, the Holy Spirit transforms your mind so that you understand the breadth and length and height and depth. And by the same Holy Spirit, you learn to love the word even more. And you begin to seek God all the more, turning away from every worldly thing, seeking wisdom in the word, seeking to see God's face in his word. It is God who opens your eyes, God who teaches you, and he will make the word of God and the gospel of Christ the treasure of your soul. This is about love, a love that comes from deep conviction. And that conviction comes from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And where do you find it? 
you find it in the word of God. You open the word and you see revealed in the word of God the gospel of Jesus Christ and his saving work and saving power that makes you a new creature. And as you receive that gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit transforms your heart and makes you a new creature so that you no longer love the world, but you love the word. And the more you open that word, the more you immerse yourself in it, the more it transforms you and conforms you to the image of Christ. You are made new and you're given a love that transforms your life. Let's pray.